A reading from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our, heaven, with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden, because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. You guys remember the show Parks and Rec? There's an episode where the gang goes on a camping retreat. And Tom Haverford, if you haven't watched the show, he's sort of the office fancy boy. Uh, I don't really know what else. I was going to refer to him as metrosexual, but I don't know if we're using that anymore. Does that make sense to anyone? I don't think it did at the time either, back in 2002. So Tom being Tom, the, the fancy boy, he orders a boatload of stuff from Sky Mall, of all places. And his tent setup is like a party palace. He's got a big screen TV, Xbox, queen size bed, a couch. He even has a soft serve ice cream machine and a robot vacuum cleaner all set up just for his tent. Obviously, Tom does not understand what camping is, right? It would have been helpful for Tom to ask those classic refocusing questions. What are we doing here? Why are we doing it? St. Paul's words to us in our reading from 2 Corinthians may serve to show us how much we have confused things ourselves, much like Tom Haverford. I would hazard to guess that most of us, most of the time, confuse our tent for our house. Right? If you're tracking with Paul's metaphors about our body here versus our resurrection body. As I said last week, Paul is able to maneuver through immense turmoil and suffering with a sense of joy because he has rooted his hope in something beyond the walls of the world, to appropriate a Tolkien phrase. But we are living in an era where salvation has become a little bit schizophrenic. On the one hand, our redemption has basically already been effected by Gwyneth Paltrow selling essential oils. Kim Kardashian is trampling down death by, I guess, moisturizer? I don't know. There's this sort of infantile materialism where there's this view of the world that fails to take into account anything beyond the physical. Pleasure here and now is the only thing that matters. But then at the same time, on the other hand, there's this vaguely Gnostic impulse in our culture where we're holding out for a better, more immersive internet where we can just 
live in the virtual world all of the time, and we can forget our physical selves. Or perhaps in the more fanciful stories we tell ourselves, we're waiting for an advanced alien civilization or a group of non-human superheroes to come and rescue us from the mess that we've made of Earth. But if you notice, in the, the things that our culture obsesses over, okay, we talk about our, our self-care rituals now. There's all this religious language around taking care of our bodies. And the stories that we tell ourselves, superheroes, aliens, etc. In all of these cases, we have been ensnared by a false view of reality that says, this is all that there is. There's nothing beyond this. There's no remainder. And this is what makes the life and writings of St. Paul so radical in our age. Because Paul is doing something entirely different. But it's not what most of our culture expects him to be doing at this point. So if you'll allow me a short aside this early in the homily. Our text from 2 Corinthians is one of those places where it becomes obvious that it is incredibly important to know the vocab of Scripture. Right? You have to read Scripture. You have to be immersed in it. As one of our colleagues says, you have to read Mark and inwardly digest it. Soak into it, right? You have to know the vocab. But it is equally important to understand the grammar of tradition. Just having the vocab words doesn't mean that you're able to actually understand what's being said. And so if you only have the vocabulary, chances are you're going to miss that Paul is threading a uniquely Christian understanding of physicality here without pitching off into the ditches on either side of this road, materialism on the one hand, or a sort of Gnostic disembodied spirituality on the other. Obviously, Paul is not reading the Goop catalog on his way down to the Apostles' Inc. building, right? Clearly, in his own actions and in his teaching to the churches, his understanding of what is to be done in the body is routed through his understanding of what happens after death, namely, the judgment seat of Christ and living in the dimension of resurrection life in God's kingdom. But when Paul says things like, we groan and are burdened in the tent of our physical existence, he is not trying to sneak in a Gnostic key code that will unlock us from our dirty, disgusting, embodied existence so that we can be free to achieve the full power of our spiritual potential. That is not what he's saying. If anything, he's doing the opposite. It's exactly the impulse that C.S. Lewis picks up on in his book, The Great Divorce. You remember when the guy takes the bus from Helltown up into heaven and everything is more real? The resurrection dimension isn't some spongy, translucent version of life here and now. It is far, far more dense and real than anything that we have experienced. The Christian story about the world, what are we doing here? And why are we doing it, right? That's, that's what these stories are designed to answer, is the story of the triune God who exists in unity and plurality. And this God is himself goodness, beauty, transcendence. He is himself being. He is not a being among other beings. He invented the very idea of existence. And the existence that he has brought about is rich and varied and physical, and it is declared to be good, 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 and very good. And the crown jewel of his creation is an iconographic work of himself, 
Humanity. Humanity lives at the frontier intersection of spirit and matter. Right? We're not angels. We're embodied. But we're also not animals. We're spiritual. We have been created with the capacity to encounter God. But this capacity cannot be located in one of our constituent parts if you carve us up just right. You don't simply encounter God mentally. You don't simply encounter God spiritually or emotionally. You encounter Him as the whole you. Dust and breath, matter and spirit, body and soul. And this through line about the human person and what it means to be a person capable of encountering God continues through the entire Christian story. This is in part why the church hammered out over centuries in seven ecumenical councils what it means to say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. As I've told you before, we sort of rattle that off. Yeah, Jesus is fully divine, fully human, as if we know divine, human. We have a lock on both of those categories. But the truth is, we don't. We really have no idea what is made up of divinity or even humanity. We don't even know what it's really all about. And it is Jesus himself who reveals both of those things to us. Because Jesus is the only person to have ever lived wherein his entire earthly existence was of unbroken communion with his Father. Which is something that all of us were designed for. He's the only one who has done it. So we can't just think about, well, I know a human being is this, and so we'll squish Jesus into that category. No, Jesus reveals to us what it truly means to be human. Which informs St. Paul's hope. The way that he can say continually we're walking by faith and not by sight. St. Paul is not hoping for the singularity. His hope in resurrection life isn't some spiritual metaphor for the nice feelings that accompany springtime. Nor is it about getting to live for a really, really, really long time. This is not about a generic humanity being metaphorically reborn through some sort of vague spiritual, psychological, emotional enlightenment. Paul's entire life has been reoriented by an encounter with a person. Not a set of ideas. A person. This is so important. One of the unintended consequences of the Protestant Reformation was to move away from an emphasis on encountering God, largely through the sacramental life of the church, and to instead focus on the articulation of ideas about God. Over the centuries, of course, even this ability to articulate ideas about God has devolved largely into a set of vague feelings expressed by an even vaguer set of words. Christianity in the modern West has been reduced into the most flimsy of all things. It's become a spirituality. It's gutted and toothless, and it's about on par with crystal necklaces and essential oils. I don't know why I'm picking on essential oils so much. They're really not bad. They're not going to save their life. <laughs> Christianity in this scheme has been reduced to what Father Schmeichel would call the very categories of this world. We don't need something from the very categories of this world. We need something breaking in from the outside, becoming us, right? And when Father Schmeichel uses that phrase, he does so in the context of talking about the movement of ascension in the liturgy, that we are being drawn upward, 
And he goes on to say this. It's another long quote, but I couldn't figure out where to cut it off because it's too good. He says, the very goal of this movement of ascension in the liturgy is to take us out of this world and to make us partakers of the world to come. In this world, the one that condemned Christ and by so doing condemned itself, no bread, no wine can become the body and blood of Christ. Nothing which is a part of it can be sacralized, made sacred. But the liturgy of the church is always an anaphora, which is the Eastern term for the Eucharist prayer, right? It's a lifting up. It's literally what it means, lifting up. It's an ascension, he says. The church fulfills itself in heaven in that new aeon, that new age, which Christ has inaugurated in his death, resurrection, and ascension, and which was given to the church on the day of Pentecost as its life, as the end toward which it moves. In this world, Christ is crucified, his body broken and his blood shed. And we must go out of this world. We must ascend to heaven in Christ in order to become partakers of the world to come. You tracking so far? He goes on. But this is not an other world, different from the one God has created and given to us. It is the same world, already perfected in Christ, but not yet in us. That's the other world, right? It's the world that Christ came to perfect. He says, it is our same world redeemed and restored in which Christ fills all things with himself. And since God has created the world as food for us and has given us food as means of communion with him, of life in him, the new food of the new life which we receive from God and his kingdom is Christ himself. He is our bread. Because from the very beginning, all our hunger was a hunger for him. And all our bread was but a symbol of him. A symbol that had to become reality. He goes on. <laughs> he became man and lived in this world. He ate and drank. And this means that the world of which he partook the very food of our world became his body, his life. But his life was totally, absolutely Eucharistic. All of it was transformed into communion with God, and all of it ascended into heaven. And now he shares this glorified life with us. What I have done alone, I give it now to you. Take, eat. Do you get what he's saying? That's a much bigger, longer, nerdier liturgical version of what St. Paul says in our lesson uh, to the sec of 2 Corinthians, that the Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee, which means that what's happening here is not a time where we look back and remember things that have happened. We are being brought into things that are happening. Right? It's, Christ is not being re-sacrificed. We are entering into his once-for-all eternal moment of sacrifice. That's what's happening here and now. We're leaving this world so that we can understand our place in this world better. Abrupt ending. Amen. <laughs>